Join everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked, and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specs and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Yof Zero. In this episode, we are going to do something a bit different from what we've been doing on the show so far, and we are going to go back to basics. We're going to spend some time on OpenID Connect, what it is and how it came to be. Normally, we would uh, just uh, go after latest trends uh, and similar, but OpenID Connect is so important and so pervasive across pretty much everything we do that uh, I thought it was important to actually pause, like hit the pause button, and just uh, spend some time understanding more about what OpenID Connect is, how it came to be, and uh, all of those things. And to do that, I enlisted my old friend, uh, Mike Jones, Identity Standards Architect in Microsoft, a very prolific contributor to the standards since time immemorial. <laughs> Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Vittorio. Thanks for joining me today. And as it's tradition, let's start with how you ended up working in identity. I had been working in Microsoft Research for about 13 years and decided that I wanted some new challenges that were actually more people-oriented, that used both my technology side and my consensus building side. And I'd actually done standards work years, years before with the POSIX thread standard. And in 2005, I met a number of key individuals, including Kim Cameron and Andrew Lehman, who convinced me to work on information cards, which was an attempt at building an identity layer for the internet. And the rest is history, as they say. So Time Immemorial starts at about 2005. Very nice. And what do you do today? Gosh, I work on identity standards that matter, but I'm still using Kim's tagline of building the missing identity layer for the internet to guide what I'm doing. I'm one of the active editors and co-chair of the OpenID Connect effort. I worked on a number of the things underlying it, including OAuth 2, the JSON web token, and the signature and encryption work under that. I work on the W3C web authentication and FIDO2 efforts to enable passwordless login. And all of it fits together really well. Wow. You do have uh, your paw in all the jars. Fantastic. Thank you for that uh, quick uh, recap. So let's jump straight into the main topic today. As I mentioned, what I would like to do today is uh, to spend some time talking about OpenID Connect. OpenID Connect is an extraordinarily successful protocol. It, it's used in so many different places and uh, to the point that most people don't even know that we are using OpenID Connect. And the thing is that it works really well. It's uh, very much alive, as opposed to SAML, as in SAML is also used, but is no longer a recipient of innovation, whereas uh, there is plenty of innovation going on with OpenID Connect. And it's fun to, for me to see like the new generations, because uh, a lot of people come and start 
working and contributing to OpenAI Connect. And very often, they just don't have a context of how things uh, came to be the way they are today. And I believe that that context can be useful. And also for the people that don't work in the identity standards, again, they are using this thing. So I think it's important to spend some time and uh, just uh, dedicate some time to understand this better. So as I mentioned, OpenID Connect has been around for a while now, but it wasn't the first protocol that had the name OpenID, right? Correct. There was an effort called OpenID 2.0 about 2005-2006, which was primarily identity for blogs. Blogs were the big thing then. I still have one. People would want identities to be able to leave comments on Vittorio's blog or my blog or corporate blogs. Now, these identities were the blog URLs. That didn't work well for most human beings. It worked for bloggers. And that system also didn't support mobile applications. So the OpenID community, you know, started around that, but realized we needed something to bring identity into the then modern age, which was the emergence of native apps on phones, JSON, REST, OAuth, etc. Right. Let me expand a bit on that. So the year is uh, 2005, 2006. That's a long time ago. And back in the day, identity was very much an enterprise uh, thing. As in, uh, you the, this idea of identity provider and similar was there, but it was mostly like company X is in a relationship with company Y. And so two administrators come together and somehow put together a federation. Whereas OpenID broke with that model and somehow empowered end users to actually go back to an identity provider and uh, actually sign in using that identity provider without any administrator being the picture. You mentioned something about the URL being the identity. Can you expand on that for a moment? Sure. I have a blog called self-issued.info. And it is still the case that I have an OpenID2 identity which is that URL. And if Vittorio was to post something, I believe at vibro.net, and I wanted to make a blog comment on it, I could make my blog comment as self-issued.info, and it would be attributed to me as my blog URL. That worked for bloggers. So basically, your blog would become your own identity provider, and then uh, whenever you had to sign in somewhere, you had to use as the username, the URL of your provider, in your case, the blog. And then uh, you'd be able to just, uh, as long as the target blog would support it, you'd be able to leave a comment in authenticated fashion. You may not even know it, Vittorio, but you said something important. You said that identity was very corporate at that time, which was true. You had SAML deployments doing useful data exchanges. I think at that time, Microsoft was already federated with SAML with ADP, and I could look at my W2 and whatnot. But it was point to point, and Microsoft and ADT decided to connect, where OpenID broke that model, where the assumption was everybody would accept everybody else's identities. 
Vibro.net didn't have to decide in advance that selfissued.info was authorized. Anybody could make a blog comment using this open identity system if you approved it. Yeah, it was a powerful innovation, but it ended up not being particularly successful. And a lot of people expressed lots of different opinions for every reason, but I think that uh, it's fair to say that uh, it wasn't very usable for pretty much anyone. Like, uh, end users really didn't understand this idea of uh, using a URL as a username, but empowering like the consumers, like the end users to make identity decisions was a powerful idea. In fact, I remember uh, back in the day, Facebook introducing these uh, Facebook Connect, I'm using the, I'm emphasizing uh, the term connect for a reason. So OpenID in itself uh, had its hype moment, but then uh, it faded. But the idea of signing in using uh, yeah, the social providers and similar endured. So what happened with uh, Facebook Connect and in general, like uh, what brought uh, OpenID Connect to the fore? Actually, in the OpenID community, we started thinking we would enhance OpenID 2.0 to provide what we called an artifact binding, which only the geeks among you will even care about that. But as we started down that road, we were also looking at the landscape of what real developers were doing. Developers were voting with their feet, moving away from XML and SOAP and building APIs on the web using JSON as the data structure rather than XML, and REST, for those of you familiar with it, as the API paradigm. So some of my good friends in the industry, among them my collaborators, Nat Sakamura and John Bradley, as well as a cast of dozens, decided we would pivot. And instead of continuing to add to OpenID 2.0, we would start over and try to do an open, if you will, social login protocol using JSON and REST, informed a little bit by the success of Facebook Connect, but also informed by things we'd learned from systems that came before, OpenID 2.0, SAML, WS Federation, information cards, and we decided to try to keep the best parts of those protocols while not making anything complicated. We wanted something that developers could just approach and build. And the design philosophy of the whole thing was keep simple things simple. Now, sometimes there were going to be complicated things, like maybe encryption, which was optional. And we wanted to make that possible, but not at the expense of keeping the simple stuff simple. And I think that approach to building the new protocol has stood the test of time. Well, the audience cannot see my very wide grin here because, uh, of course, everything is relative. For us, who came up with a diet of a WS star and the canonicalization and uh, message-based security, OpenID Connect is indeed simple, but 
like rivers of ink are being poured to explain OpenID to new generations because uh, although the protocol is probably as simple as it can be, it still isn't particularly simple. Let's say that uh, ultimately there are like a difficult like attacks that we need to be cognizant of and prevent. So there are a number of measures that we need to take care of. And the protocol needs to be ready to deal with all of that. And uh, although it is much, much simpler than uh, its uh, forefathers, it definitely is uh, still like so. Dear listener, if you <laughs> tried to read the OpenID Connect specification and you didn't find it simple, it's there is nothing wrong with you. It's just that uh, it is uh, the domain which is intrinsically complicated. Right. Indeed, security. There's reasons that some things really want to be encrypted. And there's reasons that some things really have to be signed so that you have confidence of who said the thing that was signed. And it matters. And one of the great assets that we had in that endeavor was our friend John Bradley, who just delights in realizing what could go wrong and telling us about it. But also saying what, you know, what we can do to keep it from going terribly wrong. Oh, yeah. Like anything that we can do for being uh, secure by default, but still usable. It's funny because you mentioned uh, John. John was uh, in one of the first episodes uh, of the first season of uh, Identity Unlocked. And you mentioned Nat Sakimura, who I just like today hit the publish button for an episode that was featuring him. So this is a, a small word. And... I hope that uh, with all those uh, shows that we are putting out, we will inspire new blood to join us. Otherwise, uh, we'll get completely white and it will always be just us. So, very interesting. I have two things that uh, I want to dig deeper on. One is uh, how OpenID uh, Connect builds on top of OAuth, because uh, that's a trope that everyone likes to say. And so I'd like to go into the details of that. But before this... I want to, to talk about uh, bureaucracy, as in, uh, back in the day, we already had uh, like the OSIS, uh, Cantara, we had the ITF, but for OpenID, we actually have the OpenID Foundation. So can you tell us a bit uh, about how the OpenID Foundation came to be and what it is today? OpenID 1 and 2 were started just by some developers writing code and sharing it with each other. And in fact, OpenID 2.0 came together at the first Internet Identity Workshop in Berkeley, California in 2005. And it got written down, but it was written down by just some really smart developers. And uh, there was no intellectual property agreement around it. So, you know, once you took it to those with pockets deep enough to sue, they started asking, well, is this even safe for us to use or are we opening ourselves up to patent lawsuits? And they just didn't know. And it was a fair question. So I personally worked with Microsoft's lawyers and lawyers from Sun Microsystems, remember them, and from Facebook and from, I believe, AOL and a number of others to design an intellectual property regime that 
would be simple and stand the test of time, but would give developers assurance and companies assurance that these were safe things to do. And the way that works is we all make a patent promise that everybody that contributed agrees not to sue anybody else for using the work. And there's consequences if you do some do sue somebody. That's never happened, at least in the open ID world. It was modeled after some other practices in the industry, among others, an organization called Oasis, and we were very glad to build on some of the good ideas that were already in use. And that IPR regime has since applied to all the work that the OpenID Foundation has done, which goes pretty broad. I mean, now we're in open banking and verified claims, and there's a lot of use cases for OpenID Connect, including mobile login. So let me clarify, um, you mentioned uh, the reason for which uh, some uh, administrative work has done, which was... uh, making sure that uh, people can safely use the protocol. Fantastic. But in terms of a foundation, like uh, was the foundation created as a a device for uh, enshrining those principles? I guess that this was done before Connect. So it was done before Connect, so there was never a doubt about uh, ITF. Because like uh, we mentioned earlier, and we'll expand in a second, that uh, Open Connect uh, is based on... uh, of which is a IETF standard, but the the OpenID is instead like OpenID to the top had nothing to do with of, and so you already had the foundation ready when you moved from OpenID to OpenID Connect, right? Right. Both the legal foundation, but I don't want to sell the OpenID Foundation short by saying it's just a legal protection construct, which is one of the things it does. It's also kind of a clubhouse for people interested in open identity protocols to get together. We have workshops, we have mailing lists, we have working groups, we have ongoing conversations that matter many times a week. And those of you who are interested, I'd love to talk with you about joining working groups or some of these workshops because it's high bandwidth. It's really a good community and people respect each other. Oh, absolutely. Here, I wasn't suggesting that it's just uh, an uh, incorporation of this thing. It was more for like uh, understanding uh, how it came to be. Because like, you know, the famous uh, XKCD to- uh, comic in which like uh, result, there are like N plus one standards. And this one is like an N plus one organization. So I just wanted to get back to like why it exists as an independent entity instead of uh, the work occurring in some of those other houses. Okay, great. Fantastic. Thank you. That gives me a lot of good context. So now let's start to look a bit more from the technical perspective. We know that uh, OpenID Connect is many things at this point is a framework, but Connect in itself is largely a mechanism for authentication based on OAuth. So tell me more about this. Let's say that I know what OAuth is. uh, Let's say that I know what is uh, my basic use case, which is a delegated authorization for calling an API from a third-party client. How is OpenID Connect building on top of it to achieve authentication? Sure. Great question. And I'll point out to the listeners that a long time ago, Vittorio wrote a great blog post about the difference between 
authorization and authentication, which maybe we can somehow add a link to it. That said, the difference between the two in layman's terms is authentication lets you make statements about who you are, whereas authorization just makes statements about what you're allowed to access. So I might be able to get read-only access to Vittorio's voters on Flickr, but that doesn't say who I am. Whereas if I am logging into, say, Hotmail or Gmail, it matters that I'm Mike Jones versus Vittorio Bertocci. And so OpenID adds an identity layer on top of OAuth. Now, all the messages are still legal OAuth, but it adds some little bits. It adds something called an ID token, which is about the geekiest thing I'm going to describe, which is a signed JSON web token, which represents a set of a JSON data structure and the claims, the members of that data structure say who I am at the identity provider. In particular, it'll have an issuer, might be login.google.com, and it'll have a subject, which is that really long number, which is your Google profile identity or your Microsoft profile identity or your personal one. That is not your human-readable names. It is information for what's called a relying party, which is the native app or the web application that you're logging into to know that Vittorio is the same person that logged in the last time because the issuer and the subject match, and it's signed by the issuer. And so you have confidence in the continuity of the identity. That's the first thing added. All right. Let me pause you there just so that we clarify. So you said that OpenID basically is all legal OAuth messages. And we know that the OAuth normally have all those messages because the ultimate goal is to get an access token for calling an API. But then you mentioned that you introduced a new construct, which you called the ID token. You gave a bit of a description of what's inside. And basically, the idea is that when you use OpenID, alongside or instead of an access token, I can get these ID token. And differently from the access token, which allegedly could just have authorization information, these ID token does have authentication information that the relying party can use to actually ascertain whether the user correctly signed in with a provider. Is that a fair summary? It is, but as they would say on TV when I was growing up, but wait, there's more. We do use that access token, and we do get the access token. And that access token is used at an OAuth resource called the user info endpoint to retrieve information from that endpoint about you, with your permission, of course. So you could get claims from that endpoint that might be your first name, your last name, your blog URL, your date of birth, or just the date of birth without the year. There's about 15 kind of standard things that most websites would in the past, just ask you to fill in a form when you created an account. And we 
enabled them to skip that with OpenID login by providing, with your permission, the information that you would use typically to fill out a profile at a new application or website. And so we're using that OAuth capability of the access token to get access to the claims about you. So repeating, there's two parts. The identity provider, or the ID token, is claims about your login, your authentication. The user info response is claims about you. So now you already know what I'm going to come back with. <laughs> so first, let me summarize it to make sure, and then I'll come with my comment. So the basic idea is the ID token is an artifact that can be used for doing the authentication dance, but the authentication in itself doesn't necessarily need to carry any user attributes. It's larger a matter of saying, here is an identifier which says this is the same user that you might have seen in the past. And here there is an indication that the successful authentication at the OpenID provider occurred. And now you introduce the fact that I can use the same mechanisms that I was using with OAuth for getting an access token for calling one particular resource, which is what you call user info. And the job of this particular resource is to actually provide attributes so that in the context of authentication, apart from having established a session and similar, I can also reach out and retrieve this set of predetermined attributes that you describe. Is that, uh, once again, a fair description of what happens? It is. Fantastic. So now there's my comment. My comment is uh, the one that you heard many times through the years, which is uh, that's uh, definitely an, uh, a way of uh, doing things. That's the way that probably reuses as much as possible of the OAuth infrastructure. Like if someone has an authorization server and uh, they already have like a client that uh, does uh, OAuth and similar, they can reuse these as is. Uh, and they just needed to add the ID token validation and everything else works. In practice, lots and lots of people end up skipping the user info call and embedding directly in the ID token the attributes that uh, you could retrieve from user info. And this pack does have one particular circumstance in which you are legally allowed to do this. But in practice, a lot of people do this. They include attributes in the ID token also in, uh, in situations in which the spec instead would expect you to call the user info. That's absolutely true. And, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. Some developers or deployers wanted to get their attributes sooner and not do a second call, which I understand. And the fact that this is being done at all, it harms interoperability a little bit because you're not sure what to expect when you change from one identity provider to the other. So for instance, I think Google will give you the email address kind of whether you ask for it or not, and some others don't. Also point out that this is a sign of a strength of the protocol. Like JSON, we designed it such that you can add stuff without it being an error, as opposed to there's a lot of brittle protocols that if you return something unexpected and it's received, the implementation will throw an exception. But 
Open ID code doesn't throw an exception if Google happens to include an email address. Some of them may, in fact, understand it. And this has, on the whole, been a strength of the protocol. Part of this keep things simple philosophy meant that you could build only the parts that you needed and then add stuff as you came along and needed it. And then we've added a bunch of stuff to make things simpler. We added metadata so that you can learn what attributes the identity provider supports and what attributes the relying party supports. There's a logout flow that goes beyond OAuth. OAuth has no concept of even being logged in. And so there's ways to log out. Now that's being challenged by developments in the industry, but that's a subject for another day. We already had a, an entire episode about it with uh, George Fletcher and Sam Goto from Chrome. You know, this is a, an, an alive protocol. SAML is not dead in that SAML continues to get more deployments every day. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you're right. I like to say in a, that it's not dead, it's undead. Let's say that it keeps moving, but uh, it's a corpse. It's not growing. It's new development is not occurring. Where this is a really exciting time for the OpenID community. There's a whole lot of stuff happening. Before we go to the future, let's keep trying to flesh out the present. So I think that OpenID positioned itself in the ecosystem in a similar ecological niche as SAML, WS, Fed, and similar. And I think that the inclusion of attributes in the ID token was largely done also because of that, like people migrating from WSFED, migrating from SAML. They were used to have claims uh, in the SAML token. And so it was just a natural evolution to do this. Also, when you want to call the user info, you typically want to do like either hybrid or cold flows. And that requires you to have a secret associated to your app, which you didn't need to have in SAML and WSFED. And so all the people migrating in there, if they just wanted to do a substitute your middleware, if they take the SAML WSFED middleware out and put the OpenID in, uh, just placing those attributes in the ID token made sense. But I'd say that one of the things that I always liked of uh, OpenID in respect to its predecessors is the incredible flexibility that it had in terms of application topologies. Like some AWS Fed, they had some uh, exotic extensions for calling APIs or for native clients, but they never really took off. Whereas uh, OpenID Connect uh, allows you to mix and match web sign-in, uh, calling APIs, uh, doing mobile apps. So it's incredibly flexible, right? Well, yeah, by design. I mean, we looked at the difficulties of using SAML on a native app. We looked at that OpenID 2.0 was not designed for that. And OAuth was. And we made a strategic call to build on top of something that was already becoming a thing. There's a little bit of extra complexity because we did that. OAuth, in retrospect, probably has more options and knobs than it needed to. And parts of the OAuth community are saying, well, what's a simpler subset of OAuth, which is great work as well. But to your point about hybrid flows, there's lots of response types. There's a number of different ways to get the same data. And different implementations chose different ways to do it. 
I mean, I'll fast forward and then I'll stop that we do have a certification program to make sure that for all the knobs that people choose to use, that they're doing it the same way and that it's interoperable. And you can take me there or not later in our conversation, Vittorio. It's a good point of a certification. Like I think that uh, a lot of the grassroots origin of these, you mentioned like uh, developers uh, meeting in Berkeley and then writing things down. One might think like this was a bit of like a cottage industry, but those days are far behind us. Let's say that now there is an official certification, which is both useful for interop, but also in my experience, it's really good also for testing, whether you're like even for functionality, like the, uh, the test suit is really well designed and uh, very comprehensive. And so going through the effort of trying to gain certification is just a good hygiene for whomever wants to create a product that uses OpenID. But I think that it's a good segue for adoption. So I said that this thing is uh, very widely adopted, but uh, can you give me a bit of color? Like, uh, give me a feeling of how adopted this thing really is. I'll say as a backstop or as background that OpenID Connect is plumbing. It is not a consumer brand. We learned from the OpenID 2.0 experience where we tried to make it a consumer brand that it just doesn't work. And so it's background information or it's background plumbing for login. If you use Android, if you use an Apple product, if you use Salesforce, if you use Google, if you use Deutsche Telekom, if you use Yahoo Japan, if you use NTT, if you use Docomo, I learned that AT&T was using OpenID Connect not because they told me because I want to pay my direct TV bill. And I looked at the redirect URIs that were passing by my browser. And I thought, you know, shit, I'm logging in using OpenID Connect to pay my bill. It's pretty ubiquitous. I know that my boss's boss, Alex Simons, has given some talks about the adoption of OpenID Connect among apps using Microsoft for login. And better than 95% of them are using OpenID Connect now, which is astounding. We didn't build it till about seven years ago. And now SAML's still there. WS Federation is still there. The Microsoft Live ID protocol is still there. It's all still there. But again, developers have been voting with their feet. And so I'm really thrilled with the difference that we've made in the quality of the tools and the security of the tools that people are getting to use. I mean, it was also the case that we thought about building it for every developer platform, Ruby, Java, PHP, .NET, Scala, everything. And we wanted to make sure that the choices we were making would work as well in PHP as they would in C-sharp code. And we did that. And there's a wealth of open source libraries for both identity providers and relying parties that you can find pointers to, among others, at the openid.net slash certification site. Adding one more bit of personal color, we thought about as we designed new features, is this simple enough that one of our favorite developers, a gentleman named Nov Mitaki in Japan, who's a prolific Ruby developer, if we designed a feature and we published it, would Nov think that it was cool and go implement it one afternoon? 
And if Nov could build it in an afternoon and think it was great, then we were on the right track. And if we built something super complicated, it would fail what we call the, the Nov Mataki test. Well, it's good to be pragmatic. And that sounds like a very, very pragmatic way of uh, approaching things. Okay, that's great. That really is uh, uh, very encouraging. I think it's one of the brightest success stories in our space. So what is next? Like what is happening today in uh, the Connect group? And um, where do you see things going? Uh, What are you excited about? Uh, And what do you think people should do to contribute? There's a whole bunch of great work, some of which is really a continuation of work that the industry has been taking stabs at for a decade or more. One of the key initiatives has to do with you having control of your own identity. Now, there's a system called InfoCards that Vittoria wrote a book about that I worked on, where you could have your own identity that wasn't Google or Microsoft or Salesforce, it was yours. You know, if I had Windows Vista running, I could still use it to log into my blog. But that wasn't a commercial success. But in OpenID 2.0, we borrowed that idea of a self-issued identity that you controlled. That also didn't take the world by storm. But the world's coming around to this. There's the whole verifiable credentials effort, which is about you having sets of attributes that you control. Not that that has to be the way you represent them. We have other ways to do that that already existed in Connect. But we're being inclusive of the things that are happening in the industry. And I'm hopeful that you having your own identities is a thing that will take off. There's a whole other area of work where we're building on what SAML has already succeeded at, which is what we call... Uh, large-scale federations. If you go to university, if you're in a research institute, if I have account at University of Washington, I can use that via a large-scale federation to log in to the CERN electron collider in Switzerland. Not because CERN gave me an account, but because they're part of an international federation. And all of that works with SAML. Well, a bunch of the people in the middle of the SAML world and the Federation world have built a profile of Connect so that they can use OpenID Connect for those federations instead of using SAML, which again is, Vittoria likes to put it, an undead protocol. There's also fairly technical work about letting you pull information about yourself from other sources. Let's say I've got an identity provider, an Auth0 site, and maybe the Auth0 site has your first name and your last name and an authoritative email address, but it doesn't have your diploma. It doesn't have your credentials as a musician or a physician or what have you. We have ways of reaching out from the Auth0 identity provider on the user's behalf and getting this additional information in an authoritative way. And that's work that's building on stuff that was started in OpenID Connect a decade ago. Oh, wow. Hey, it's that long? Like, this is the Mark Hein uh, EIC, EIC, right? The high assurance uh, 
I think we did have one episode with Mark last season. So yeah, that's great work. I was just going to remind the audience that EKYC is electronic, know your customer. And then there's an identity assurance part to that too. It's ways of making authoritative statements that say, my friend Torsten in Germany has a German passport under issued under a particular regime, and it can be used with uh, European EIDAS identity systems and fits with trust frameworks. And so it's a combination of technical and legal work. And a lot of the use cases for real identity where you know who the person is in some legal sense, not just because you created a Hotmail account and claimed to be Jane Doe, require both legal and technical work. And we're in that space as well. I like how this plays out actually on what you said earlier, that Connect is plumbing. It provides this solid layer on which we can take care of the basics of having multiple entities communicating with each other in a secure, reliable way. And now we can move our attention to a higher degree level of problems. And that's exactly what's happening, which is fantastic. So tell me about what you would like the community to do. What's your call to action? Well, certainly the ground level is if you're a developer or a system administrator or somebody in a CTO's office, if you're not using OpenID Connect, think about whether that will add value for you. I'm not telling you to use it, but make an honest assessment. Would this help you? And there's lots of tools and resources available to help you get there very quickly. If you're interested in some of the futures that we're trying to build out, and you're so inclined, consider joining the OpenID Foundation and its working groups and bring your voice to the table. As I said, the OpenID Foundation may have started as a legal construct, but it's become a community clubhouse. And we not only do good work, we have a good time. And so I'm very honored to have been associated with it for these years. I confirm we do have uh, a good time and uh, it's very productive. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to come to the show. This was uh, super interesting and uh, we'll uh, publish all the various links together with the episode. And I'm sure that uh, as we go on with the show, I love you again for talking about some of the specific things that you mentioned earlier. But for now, Thanks again. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope people find it useful. I'm sure they will. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, until the next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is uh, Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Walowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero.